Good morning, Grace. Ezra chapter 3, continuing our series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. While you're turning there, I want to let you know that we had an elders retreat this weekend, and the elders and their wives uh, got together, and we talked and prayed, and, and the pastoral staff and their spouses, and just looking back at 2013 and uh, recalling the evidence of God's grace that we've seen here at Grace. And then where do we need God's grace and his strength for the future? So I just want you to know, please be in prayer for the elders and the pastoral staff. These, these are, the elders are men who love God. They want to shepherd you with joy. They want to point you to Jesus. Uh, they do a hard work because when we make decisions around here, many people get mad at the elders. So please keep them in your prayers. And the pastoral staff as well. We all want in leadership, want to love and, and serve you and shepherd you. So please keep us in your prayers. But we had a great uh, weekend just uh, reading scripture, praying, and just talking about how good God has been to us. Ezra chapter 3. We're going to look at the first six verses today. Let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, we pray with the psalmist this morning. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to getting gain. Open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Do it by the power of the Spirit for your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're just going to get down to business today. There's no opening sermon introduction or illustration like sometimes we do. We're going to break all the preaching rules today and just get down to business. Why? Because that's what the author of Ezra and Nehemiah does here in chapter 3. He doesn't give us any details about what happened to Israel on their journey back to Jerusalem, what it looked like when they settled. He doesn't give us any details about what happened when these 42,360 Israelites returned. No details about where they decided to put their tents up. No details about who got the sweet spot under the large oak tree as their place to live. No information on where they bought diapers, etc. We get no information, even though inquiring minds want to know. The author of Ezra and Nehemiah just gets down to business in chapter 3. So let's get down to business too. The big idea that pops out of the first six verses of Ezra 6 is this. Worship whenever blank. Worship whenever blank. That blank on your sermon notes page has been intentionally left blank. It's for you to fill in, not necessarily here and now, but for you to fill in every day of your life, whatever situation you find yourself in. You can worship God whenever anything happens in your life. Worship whenever blank. You fill in the blank. We can worship God whenever things are bleak. We can worship God whenever things go south. We can worship God whenever or whatever is happening in our lives because He is worthy. Worship whenever blank. Look at verses 1 through 3 and we will hear the word of the God who is worthy of worship at all times. Beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord. When the seventh month came... 
and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, you have to imagine the scene. The Israelites for 70 years were in exile, in captivity in Babylon because of their sin and their rebellion against Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. So they travel many miles and many months, about four months' journey. Imagine 42,360 people traveling for four months to return to Jerusalem. They have been in exile, and some of these people left Jerusalem 70 years prior to this as a small child or maybe a teenager. But others were born and raised in Babylon. So for some of them who are returning, Babylon is all that they have ever known. So there is much uncertainty in the air as they return. There's a lot of unknown. These are dark times. They are uncertain times for Israel. And yet where is their focus? It's not on their homes, where they're going to live. The author is not interested in telling us where they lived. He just says they went back to their towns. He gives us no details on that because their focus was not on their homes, but on their hearts. They weren't concerned about where are we going to live necessarily. They're concerned about what was happening in their hearts. And what occupied their hearts? It was Yahweh, their God, the sovereign Lord. Worshiping the Lord was their priority in life. Their major concern in life was restoring corporate worship. Worship was their priority. They gathered as one man in Jerusalem, the text says, to begin rebuilding the altar so they could offer sacrifices and worship Yahweh again as a corporate body. Now picture the ruins of Solomon's temple in your mind. The, the, the Babylonians leveled and destroyed this beautiful temple. They leveled it. Stones were turned over. Everything was destroyed. Imagine they come back and there's grass that's grown up in weeds. It's just a, there's trash and clutter. This place is destroyed from the glory that it once was. And now it's just laying there in ruins. It's not a pretty sight. But they begin to clean up the area. And they build the altar, as verse 2 says, to offer burnt offerings on it. Now, the altar of God was in the outer court of the temple, and it was roughly 30 to 40 feet wide and about 20 feet high in the air, and it was square and raised up with these steps leading up to the altar where they would place the sacrifices. The priest would climb the stairs and place the animal or the parts of the animal on the altar where it would then be burned up and consumed. And there's a picture of it right there, of what it would have looked like. So let's talk about the burnt offering for a moment here that they were offering. The burnt offering is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 1, but I'm sure most of you know that because you read Leviticus all the time. It's mentioned first in the book of Leviticus because it answers the most important question that every human being needs to answer. 
Leviticus chapter 1, the burnt offering, answers the most important question that every human being needs to answer, and that's this. How can a sinful, impure, mortal human being find access into the presence of the holy God of the universe? You have to answer that question for yourself. I have to answer that question. That's the most important question that you will ever have to answer and find the answer to. So at the very beginning of Israel's worship manual, the book of Leviticus, that question gets answered by describing the burnt offering, which is what Israel was offering on this day after they rebuilt the altar. The burnt offering was sometimes called the Holocaust offering because everything on the altar would be burned up and consumed. Alan Ross says this, Even though this offering was not normally the first offering made by a worshiper who came to the sanctuary, it is listed first in Leviticus because it was one of the most frequently made sacrifices and because it was one of the most important. It was the only sacrifice that belonged completely to God. It signified both complete surrender to God by the offerer and complete acceptance by God of the worshiper who brought it. Now, the main purpose of the burnt offering was atonement. Through the sacrifice of an animal on behalf of the worshiper, sin was purged and forgiven so that once again the worshiper could enjoy peace with God. So the worshiper would bring the appropriate animal according to Leviticus chapter 1, something from some sort of livestock, a sheep, a goat or maybe a bird, depending on your, your financial status, God made it acceptable for you to be able to approach him. So he, there were certain ones, if depending on how well off or poor you were for you, but God made it possible for everyone from whatever economic standing to be able to gain access to his presence. So you would take whatever appropriate animal it was, you would place your hand on the animal, and you would say this prayer, probably even as the animal is wiggling and trying to get away. You would place your hand upon the animal's head, and you would say, pray something like this, Lord, I am a great sinner. I deserve death for breaking your law. But thank you for providing a way into your presence. Thank you that you are merciful and gracious and you don't count my sins against me. Let this animal bear the curse for my sin. And then you would press down hard on that animal's head and neck. And you would take a knife and you would slit that animal's throat. What a picture. What a vivid reminder to the sinful worshiper. As the animal wiggled around and then crumbled and collapsed to the ground and lay lifeless on the ground, the worshiper would have recognized, they should have recognized, that they should be the one with the slit throat dead on the ground because of their sin against a holy God. The priest would then gather some of the blood and throw it on the sides of the altar. The animal would be cut up and washed and would then be placed on the altar, all of the animal, and it would be burned up completely, signifying that God had accepted the sacrifice. It would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, Leviticus 1 says three times in verses 9, 13, and 17. This was a a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The fire that consumed the animal was God's way of saying to the worshiper, it is finished. You are accepted. You are forgiven. 
enjoy my presence. Obviously, this picture, the burnt offering, like all of the other sacrifices in the Old Testament, are pointing toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself in our place, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.2, as a pleasing sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, so that we could be forgiven, and so that we could enjoy peace with God. And that's what we will celebrate in a moment when we eat the Lord's Supper. We will celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But why did these Israelites offer burnt offerings right away after the altar was built? Why is it significant that they offered the burnt offering? Because they had just come out of 70 years of exile and captivity in Babylon, and they needed to celebrate atonement and forgiveness. They needed to be reminded, like us, every day that the good news of the gospel, the good news of the burnt offering, is that sinners can find acceptance with God. The burnt offering was just an Old Testament substitutionary atonement version of what we like to say around here at Grace, and that's this, rehearse the gospel, preach the gospel to yourself. That's what the Israelites were doing as they returned from exile. Seventy years of captivity for their sin and their rebellion against Yahweh, and now they worship Yahweh by rehearsing the gospel and offering the burnt offering. It's a reminder to us as we look at the Israelites that even if we've totally wrecked our lives with sin, we can be restored and we can be forgiven. We can worship God. Worship whenever blank. Worship whenever. Worship whenever you totally wreck your life with sin And you come back home. Worship Jesus when you remember how sinful you are and just how good and gracious and merciful he is. Worship whenever because he is worthy. Because he has made a way for messed up sinners like us to come into his presence. He has made a way for us to come close. So Israel's first priority was to build the altar so that they could offer burnt sacrifices in worship so they could celebrate fellowship with God through substitutionary atonement. Now, basically everything about their worship experience at this point was in ruins as they arrived in Jerusalem. It's not like the glory of Solomon's temple, which we'll look at next week as some of the older folks are just weeping as they build the altar because they remember the glory days. It's not like the glory of old for Israel, but it was a start. And where did they start? God's word. Verse 2 says that they built the altar of God to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. Notice how the word of God is regulating their worship. They aren't free to worship Yahweh anyway. There is a standard, and the standard is the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, specifically Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This was worship By the book, the word of God regulated their worship. They couldn't just worship any way that they wanted to. 
they knew they had to follow Leviticus. After all, they just returned from exile because of their sin and their rebellion. They definitely didn't want to take a chance of being sent into exile again. They knew that they couldn't worship in any way that they wanted. They knew that, hey, we observe some worship practices of the Babylonians, and they knew we cannot copy what they do when it comes to the worship of our God. So if someone had come and said, hey, I saw the Babylonians do this thing when they worship their gods. Can I try and worship Yahweh that way? It seems like a good idea to me. Don't I have freedom to worship any way that I want? Why are you priests all so uptight? I want to worship my way. If an Israelite came and said that to the priests Jeshua and Zerubbabel, who are mentioned here in Ezra 3, if an Israelite came up and said that to those priests, that Israelite might have ended up himself as a burnt offering on the altar. Why? Because Israel knew that the word of God regulated their worship. They knew they couldn't just worship Yahweh any way that they wanted to. They knew they had to follow his word. They weren't about to get sent back into exile. So they were very meticulous about God's ways of worshiping him. This is what the Westminster Divines called the regulative principle in worship. As the Westminster Divines wrote the Westminster Confession, they talked about the regulative principle, which says this in chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. In other words, Christians are to worship God only as he has commanded and whatever God has not commanded for worship in Scripture is forbidden. Now, this accords with our big idea, worship whenever. We can worship God whenever, but we cannot worship God however. We cannot worship God however we want to. We cannot worship God however or in whatever way that we think is right. We can dream up a way to try to worship Him on Sunday morning. We can't. We must let the Scriptures tell us how to worship. For instance, I remember seeing a man preaching on TV once, and while he was preaching, he had these two guys on motorcycles behind him on this very large stage doing wheelies and flips on these big ramps the whole time that he's preaching. And I saw another guy on TV once who who was working out on this elliptical machine the whole time he was preaching. Kudos to him for doing it and not getting out of breath as he was because he was preaching on physical or spiritual fitness. But let me ask you, when did the word of God quit being sufficient? When did we start needing bells and whistles to accompany the preaching of God's word? Isn't this book enough? Isn't this book enough for the pulpit? This book, the Bible, the scriptures, God's word prescribes how we must worship. We cannot come up with our own ideas of how to worship. We have to follow God's word, because God says, this is how you worship me. 
So that's why you won't ever see us have someone dressed up as a clown, juggling flaming swords as a part of our worship service. Now, if that's your job, and that's what you do to make a living, then fine. If you do kids' birthday parties or, and dress up as a clown and juggle flaming swords as your job or as your vocation, or you just do it just for fun, that's fine. That is worship because it's your job, or it is worship because it's what you enjoy doing for fun. You can worship God through your work or your hobby as a flaming sword-juggling clown. But we won't do that in here on Sunday morning. In here. Because we don't see that in Scripture. Even the book of Revelation doesn't have clowns juggling flaming swords. Is it worship when you ride your dirt bike, your motorcycle on the racetrack or out in a field? Yes. It is, is it worship when you work out on an elliptical machine? Yes. Why? Because all of life is worship for the Christian. You can worship God as you ride your motorcycle or as you work out or as you juggle flaming swords while dressed as a clown. But when it comes to corporate worship on the Sabbath, gathered as the people of God, this book is our guide. The Bible regulates our worship. We aren't free to worship any way that we want to. We don't need dirt bikes or elliptical machines to make this book relevant. We need this book. And this book is relevant because it speaks to sinners who need a savior. It speaks to sinners who need a redeemer. Israel was letting the word of God, regulate and guide their worship. Now, let me show you where I'm getting this. Notice the emphasis that is given on that truth in the text here, how God's word is regulating their worship. In verse 2, it says, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And then in verse 4, it says, as it is written, according to the rule. And then verse 5, the appointed feasts, and then verse 10, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. The people of God need God's word to guide their worship. This is worship by the book. And that's exactly what was happening in Ezra 3. But there's something else happening here as well. It isn't just their sin that drives them to worship it isn't just the fact that they knew that they were sinners who needed forgiveness that they worshiped. There's another reason they worship. One of the reasons that they set the altar up quickly was also because they were afraid. Much afraid. Look at verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. There was opposition by the peoples living in Jerusalem, the people that occupied Jerusalem when Israel was carried away. We'll see more of this opposition in chapter 4 of Ezra and as we get into the book of Nehemiah. But imagine if 42,000 plus people showed up one day to Jerusalem and just said, hey, we're back. For those foreigners and non-Israelites living in Jerusalem and scattered throughout Israel for the last 70 years, while Israel was in Babylon, their return was not good news to them. But God's people have their priorities straight here. 
Worship comes first. Here we find God's people with no place to live, no jobs. There's tension and hatred from others, hatred from the world. They're afraid, they're scared. And how do they respond? They worship, and they worshiped by the book, God's word. Worship whenever blank. Worship whenever. Worship whenever you are afraid. Worship whenever you are consumed by fear. That's what Israel does here. They are fearful, and they get out copies of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, and they start rebuilding the altar to worship. It may seem crazy to us, but it's the right thing to do. It's the only thing to do. Now, some of you may think it's crazy that in the midst of their fear, they read Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers. This is crazy. Life is unstable, so they turn to Scripture and worship. That's crazy. That's radical. The world would look at us and say, when you get scared, you turn to a book? That's crazy. I turn to the bottle or some TV, something else. You turn to a book? You want to know what radical is? When you're scared to death and you worship Jesus. You want to know what radical is? Radical is when you are stressed out and worried, scared to death, consumed with the issues of life, and you stop and you worship the God that you serve. That's radical because it goes against all human nature. So what about you today? What's going on in your life? Is there fear, stress, worry? Feel like your life is in ruins like the temple that Solomon had built but that was destroyed by the Babylonians? You feel overwhelmed with something today? Well, what's an appropriate way to react? I know one thing that would be right. One thing that would be appropriate. One thing that would be fitting. Whatever is happening in your life, and it's this. Worship. Worship is always appropriate. Whatever is happening. Because our God is always worthy to be worshipped. As the psalmist says, praise is fitting. Psalm 147 verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Psalm 33 verse 1. Praise befits the upright Ray Ortland says this, a spirit of praise toward God is not just obligatory, it is fitting, it is beautiful. That's what the verse is saying. A frowning church is really missing something, but a praising church is beautiful. Think of a man wearing a great suit with the perfect shirt for that suit, but then he puts on a killer tie that makes the whole thing pop. That's what praise to God does for a church. Whatever the style of the church may be, a spirit of praise puts a convincing and satisfying beauty upon it. Praises to God so befit us who are not upright in ourselves, but fully upright in Christ. It's what we do as the people of God, the city of God, the city on a hill. We worship. Worship is always appropriate because God is always worthy, no matter what's happening in our life. So are you scared about something today? Fearful? Does the unknown, the uncertain of what lies ahead have you in knots? Does all of the uncertainty of the future 
keep you up at night. But what you need is God's word, a promise from God's word. You need Jesus to tell you what he says in Luke 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love that verse. Fear not. Jesus knew that we would fear. Jesus knew that we would be scared. Jesus knew that we would stress over what we're going to eat and where, how we're going to survive, what's going to happen in our future. Jesus knew that, and he doesn't come and scold us. He doesn't throw his hands up in the air and say, can't you just get your act together? No, no, he comes and he says, fear not, little flock. Little flock. What a beautiful nickname he has given to us. He gave us this little nickname, little flock. Fear not, little flock. Fear not. Why? Because your heavenly father takes great delight, great pleasure in giving you the kingdom. As he took great pleasure in the sacrifice of his son Jesus, so too he takes great delight to give his children the kingdom. That just might be reason to make a joyful noise. Yes, little flock of God here at Grace. Psalm 100 verses 1 through 3, which Greg read earlier, is our fighter verse this week. It reminds us that we can worship because we are his little flock. Psalm 100 verses 1 through 3. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The sheep of his pasture. His little flock. There's such beauty in this collection of these two words. Such beauty in those two words. Fear not. Such beauty in those two words, little flock. Such beauty in those two words, worship whenever. Because of Jesus, we can worship whenever blank. We can worship whenever and whatever is happening in our lives because he is worthy. The Israelites were scared and they worshiped. But they're also very weak and fragile, which is what you would expect from a little flock. Look at verses four through six. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Notice again how the word of God is regulating and guiding their worship. They celebrated the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a festival that was designed to remind Israel of their wilderness wanderings when they came out of captivity in Egypt many years before. Now, I'm sure the returnees read about the Feast of Booths in Leviticus 23 and in Numbers 29 as they were coming back to God's word and saying, how do we worship the God that we serve? He tells us in his word, I imagine they read Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29 and they said, we need to keep the Feast of Booths. 
Now, during an entire week for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Israelites were to live in these makeshift, fragile huts or booths. This was like camping out. It was to remind them of those wilderness years where they had no home, and it was to remind them how fragile their lives were. It was to remind them that they were weak. But understand this, Grace. God's people aren't weak just one week out of the year. The Feast of Booths was designed to scream into the Israelites' ears that God's people are always weak and fragile. Let me repeat that again. God's people aren't just weak one week of the year as they celebrate the Feast of Booths. As they celebrated this feast, it was designed to scream into their ears that God's people are always weak and we are always fragile. They weren't just weak and fragile because they had just returned to Jerusalem and were trying to rebuild the temple. They weren't weak and fragile just because they had no place to live. The Israelites in Ezra 3 weren't weak and fragile because they were living in tents. They were weak and fragile because that's how God's people are at all times and in every generation. We are weak. We are fragile. And the proof of that is that we don't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love sin, and we choose sin daily. We're weak, but the good news of the gospel is that God loves us with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let me pose another question to you. Is there anything more appropriate than worshiping Jesus when you recognize your weakness and his strength? Is there anything more appropriate than worshiping Jesus when you recognize your weakness and you recognize his strength? That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 when he received the thorn in the flesh. He says in verses 9 through 10, But Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And how did Paul respond to that promise from Jesus? He says, Therefore, in light of this promise, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, content with insults, content with hardships, content with persecutions, and content with calamities. And here's why. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's probably why the very last verse in the Bible says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Revelation 22, verse 21. Don't we need just one more reminder before the Bible closes that his grace is sufficient? Isn't it fitting that the Bible closes by telling us that God's grace is sufficient for our weakness? We just need one more reminder that we are weak because we don't want to believe it. When you're fragile and weak and you think you can't go on, worship him. And how did the Israelites worship when they were fragile? 
They did it by the book. Verse 4 says, They kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. As it is written, according to the rule, as each day required. That is worship that is Bible-centered. That is worship that is regulated and governed by the word of God. All in response to his grace. What grace it is that God has revealed exactly how we can be made right with him. Isn't that grace? He tells fallen sinners, here's how you can be made right with me. You turn from your sins, you repent, and you cling by faith and you trust in my son Jesus. What grace. And what grace it is that God has revealed exactly how we can worship him. Aren't you glad he didn't leave us in the dark? Because he has revealed how we are to worship him, and we come up with some crazy ideas to try to do it. What if he had not told us? I think our ideas might be even crazier. But in his grace, he says, here's how you worship me. And those two truths, how a sinner is made right with God and how God tells us how we can worship him, those two truths collide right here in the Lord's Supper. It's all centered on Jesus. The sacrifice that all of the other sacrifices were pointing to. This chapter here just oozes with worship. It oozes with extravagant worship by messy sinners in response to the grace of a holy, good God. This chapter oozes with extravagant worship that is governed and regulated by the book. This chapter is full of sinners who wrecked their lives by their sin, but they found restoration, redemption, and forgiveness through substitutionary atonement. This chapter is full of scared people. This chapter is full of weak people. This chapter reminds me of the little flock that is gathered here today. This chapter reminds me of us. This chapter is like a mirror. I see our reflection in it. As I look around the room and see a room full of sinners, I also see the bread and the cup here on this table. And when I see the bread and the cup, I see Jesus. I see grace. I see grace being given to sinners who have messed up their lives. I see grace being given to a scared little flock. I see grace being given to the weak. I see Jesus saying, fear not, little flock. Worship whenever. Worship now.